the next throughout the rest of this semester. And uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. I think um, I think it's a strange book that not a lot of people necessarily understand. Um, but I think it also is a lot of really important things to say to the world that we live in today, um, and not just our faith life, but our actual lives outside of. Well, that makes a false dichotomy. It says things about our faith life and our real, our academic life and our social life, all sorts of things. So that's why we're looking at it. This, tonight, we're actually going to dig into the text. I'm sure some of you are like, well, we're we actually going to look at Leviticus, Jonathan? So, yes, <laughs> we're going to dig into it tonight. Um, and so we're, the, what we're going to look at tonight, the text dives straight in, man. It just goes right at uh, some weird stuff, some interesting stuff that's kind of strange to us. Um, and so before we do that, I want to refresh us really quickly on what we talked about last week. Um, if you remember last week, Israel, which was the ethnic people, the ethnic Jewish people, had been freed from slavery in Egypt, and uh, they had just watched God nuke the Egyptians, just bring them to their knees, and um, they had witnessed his power on an unprecedented level to redeem them, to save them. And uh, last week we saw that God comes to Israel and says, I want you to be my special people. I want you to be, what did he say? A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I want you to be my special people. So that brings us up to here now. That brings us up to where we are right now. And um, so I'm going to read this text and we'll look at what it says. So this is the first nine verses of Leviticus chapter one. If you have a bulletin, uh, look uh, look at it with me. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord." He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire." And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you once again for your faithfulness to bring us to another week, uh, for your grace to give us the energy to go to class, to work, to lean into the things that you've called us for. Father, we pray now as we look at your word that you would give us sustained energy mentally, emotionally, and spiritually to look at your word as it looks at us, and that we would be honest with ourselves and honest with you, and that we would be changed through it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Right? Here we go. I told you it dives right in. All of a sudden, we're talking about blood offerings right off the bat, and it's heavy stuff, right? It looks weird. It feels strange. So again, remember what's going on here. The people of Israel are coming out of Egypt, and all of a sudden, they're asking a lot of questions. Who is this God? What just happened to us? What are we supposed to do with this? Now, think with me what's happening here. 
walk a mile in their shoes. You've just been freed from Egypt, and now the God who just did this, the living God, is coming and saying, I'm going to dwell among you. I'm going to live among you as a people. And, and he says, I'm going to literally dwell in a physical tent. Some of you may know it's the tabernacle. It's a tent that he's coming in. And he mentions it here in verse 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle. And if you look back, if you have a Bible and you look back literally to the last words of Exodus, the last words of Exodus, it talks about how the glory of God in the form of a burning cloud comes down and slams into this tent, this tabernacle that they had made, and fills the tent. And so there's no denying that people are, are like, whoa, this is actually happening. God is living in our camp. God is living, is dwelling in our camp. And uh, here is this incredibly powerful, incredibly pure God who is, is, is dwelling among us. And that would be a bit, sh- I mean, I think it would blow our world open. It certainly would blow their world open. And the reason is, is because all of a sudden they're realizing how different God is from them. How different, how distinct God is. And the word that we use to describe God's difference is holy. We say that God is holy, not that he's perforated, but that he's holy, H-O-L-Y, that he's different, distinct, separate from everything around him. Now, how is God holy? How is God holy? Well, he's holy in two main ways. First, he's holy or separate in his power, but he's also holy in his moral purity. He's holy in his power, holy in his moral purity. So his power is obvious, right? He just destroyed the superpower of the world in nine plagues, just wiped them out, brought them to their knees. And everyone's like, yeah, there's no contesting this. He split the Red Sea. We walked through it. We get how powerful this God is. He's definitely different from us. But the other one that is, that is a bit more of a challenge is that he's totally distinct in that he is morally pure, perfectly, completely morally pure. He's completely, he's completely clean and, and, and perfect in all, of his, in all of his being. So this is really difficult for us to understand because we're not holy, but it's even harder for us to live in a world today because we don't, we don't naturally think in these terms. I'm going to get to that in a bit of a second, but imagine that someone who is incredibly powerful and incredibly pure coming and living with you. Imagine you get a text that says, or a phone call or a snap that says, the Queen of England is going to come and live in your house. Now, Joseph would be thrilled with this, I know. But imagine that here's a woman who's descended from the greatest, one of the greatest monarchical lines in human history coming and saying, I'm going to live in Pignon. I'm going to live on Payne Street with you guys. <laughs> Payne Street would be like, oh, no. <laughs> How would you react? How would you react? Well, first of all, you'd be like, us? No, 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 no. You can't come to my dorm. You don't come to VDM or RGH. You, this is not a good place. Don't come live with us. But then you would start to thinking, well, if she's coming, we should probably not just give her swipes at Towson Mac and Cheese. Like, we should actually start cleaning up a bit. We, we, so we, need, to, we need to maybe go buy some scones at least or some tea. <laughs> like, if the Queen of England is coming... And so you would start to try and like tidy up because 
This is a powerful, separate, distinct person coming to live among us. Well, that's exactly what's happening here. But on a cosmic and theological level, the God of the universe is coming to the Israelites and saying, I'm going to dwell, I'm going to live among you in the midst of his perfect power and his perfect moral perfection. Now, if you're the Israelites, if you're one of us, that all of a sudden presents a problem. It presents a very real problem. The Israelites were hyper aware of this problem. And it's this, that how can, they, they, it, it forces the question, how can we live in the presence of this God? How can we live in the presence of this God? We're not perfect like him. He is so perfect, he will destroy us. He is so powerful, his presence will destroy us. We saw what he did to Egypt. If we're anything less than his standard of perfection, we will be consumed. Remember that this is the God who smoked the Egyptians. The first thought they would have had is, we are not worthy. In fact, the dominant question in the book of Leviticus that we will look at over and over again is the Israelites are asking, how can we live, how can we survive in the presence of this holy, holy, holy God? It's just as if the Queen, of Elizabeth, uh, Queen Elizabeth said, I'm moving into Pinion or pain. You would be like, how? we're not worthy. We don't deserve this. How are we going to live like this? And it would, you would quickly realize how unworthy you are. And in contrast, in contrast, they would realize how unworthy they are in comparison to God's holiness. Anything less than perfection and God would destroy them. Because that's how clean he is. That's how perfect and holy he is. And in fact, in Leviticus chapter 10, that's exactly what happens. Two priests come into God's presence flippantly, casually, and they're consumed. Literally, they are consumed by fire and they die. And the people are like, whoa, see, this is what, how do we live in the presence of this God? We're not okay. We're not okay. Some of us chafe at this and we think, well, why can't God just lower his standards? Why can't he just accept them as they are? After all, isn't that what, isn't that what God's all about? Is, is accepting them for as they are and loving us? Well, I think I would push back on that and say that actually I think all of us have this sort of idea of holiness and being worthy kind of buried in our mind and in our culture of being worthy for something. So last week I mentioned that I had been watching this show called Seven Days Out. I watched another episode this week about the Kentucky Derby. Um, and the Kentucky Derby, if you know anything about it, is like the oldest and most famous horse race in you know, the world. It's a super big deal, big hats, big, big hair, I don't know. Um, but anyways, you know, it's extremely prestigious. Millions of dollars of, of um, gambling money and betting and um, just a ton of hoopla around this event. Uh, you know, horses and prestige and all this stuff. And, and the episode that they're watching, this was, the epi- this was uh, they were looking at specifically the 2018 Kentucky Derby. They, they focus on one particular horse trainer. His name is Dale Romans. And Dale Romans is one of the best horse trainers in the whole world. He, he has won thousands of races with his, with his horses. Everyone recognizes this guy's a good horse racer. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to win a race. Um, He's raced at Churchill Downs, where the Kentucky Derby, or his horse has raced at Kentucky Derby, um, so, you know, lots of times, but he's never won a Kentucky Derby. 
He himself has never had a horse win the Kentucky Derby. And at one point in the documentary, he says, um, he says, I've been all over Churchill Downs. I've walked over every square inch of this place, but I've never been in the winner's circle. And then he paused and he says, that's holy ground. That's holy ground. He understands that the winner's circle at Churchill Downs is a special place that only those who are worthy can go into. That only the worthy ones can go into that. And I think we would agree. You can't just flaunt into the winner's circle of Kentucky Derby and be like, yeah, I deserve to be here. No. you gotta have it. You got to earn it. you got to be able to train and run a horse that can win the Kentucky Derby to be there. It's the same thing here that's happening on a cosmic and a theological level. We can't just meander into God's presence and we can't just ask Him to lower His standards. That's just not how things work in our world or certainly in, a, in, in the theological world. Well, why is that? It's because we're not holy. We're not worthy. Right? And the Bible calls that, all over it calls that sin. Sin is not up front in this text that we're reading. It's not shouted at you, this idea of sin, but it's present. It's present in the shadows behind the scenes in this text. And, and, and what it is, is it's showing us that we are not worthy to enter God's presence. In fact, we deserve his wrath. What is sin? Sin is intentional and culpable rejection of God and his rules. I'll say that again. Sin is intentional and culpable rejection of God and his rules. First, it's intentional. We don't just stumble into it and say, whoa, how did I get here? No, sin is something that we know we're doing. We know when we are rejecting God. We know, you know those times when you're doing something, you're like, I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm going to do it. It's intentional. But it's also culpable. It carries with it, it's blameworthy. We, we, we deserve the blame for it. There's actual guilt that comes from it. It's like when you get a speeding ticket and you protest and you're like, no, I didn't do it. But you're like... Yeah, I was, I was doing 15 over, and I know it. I deserve the fine. Like, you know it. The officer knows it. You deserve the blame. And if we're, if we're really honest with each other, at least if we're really honest with myself, if I'm honest with myself, we see how deficient, how unworthy, in biblical language, how sinful we actually are. Um, and, and, and that is exactly what the Israelites saw. They looked at themselves, they saw God's power, they saw his moral purity, and they said, we cannot measure up. We can't measure up. How are we going to survive if this God lives in our camp? How are we going to survive? So what have we seen so far? What do we see? We see that God dwells among his people in perfect holiness, and that his holiness exposes our sin, our unholiness. And that's one of the major reasons, I think, why we get confused by the book of Leviticus. It's that God dwells among his people in perfect holiness and that we as humans are frightfully shameful, guilty, and unholy. And so that forces the question, how does an unholy people survive in the presence of the living God? How does an unholy people survive in the presence of the living God? Well, God in his grace is giving us a solution right now in this burnt offering. Look with me at it. Look at Leviticus 1. He says, 
Speak to the people of Israel and says, When one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring an offering of livestock from the herd of the flock. That is, he says, when you sin, when you are unholy, when you are unworthy, here is a means to reestablish relationship. Here is a means to deal with sin. What's the solution? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Someone has to pay for that guilt. Someone has to pay for the shame, the sin. Because of sin, something has to be consumed. You can't just brush it under the table. Somehow you have to become worthy again. And the solution that he gives them is animal sacrifice. Now, animal sacrifice, that feels very weird to us today, doesn't it? It feels either inhumane or pagan or something. It feels weird to us. But here's the deal. The idea of sacrifice is not as odd to us as we think. The ideal of sacrifice is not as weird as we think. In fact, I think that we all still have an idea of offering sacrifices. Even today, in the 21st century, what do I mean? Well, what is a sacrifice? What is a sacrifice? A sacrifice is basically when we pay something costly. When we pay something costly to make us worthy or to reestablish a relationship. We do it all the time. It's, it's common even in our language. We use the word sacrifice. So we'll say, like, we'll sacrifice our time to make a grade, right? That's just, we say that, like, oh, I got to go sacrifice my time. I got to go spend time so that I can make a good grade. We, when we're willing to do that, or we definitely will sacrifice our emotional resources to be a good friend. Do we even do it, I think, to deal with guilt and shame? How many of y'all have watched The Office? Y'all should, I mean, all of you should. If you don't, then something's wrong with you. All right, so how many of you remember in The Office? Well, the reason why we love The Office is because it takes like normal life that we all live in and just kind of blows it up into this absurd thing that we're all like, ee, that stings, but yeah. And, and do you all remember that, that episode in The Office where Dwight goes behind Michael's back to try and get his job? And Jan, he goes to New York and interviews with Jan. And, um, it, it, you know, he comes back and he's just like, and Michael's like, do you want an M&M? He's like, they're good, huh? And he's like, yeah. He's like, how was the dentist? And he's like, it's good. They're new fillings. You remember the scene. It's really funny. If you, if you haven't watched it, you've got to go watch it. But eventually, uh, he gets found out. He gets found out that he was trying to go behind Michael's back and if you remember, it's just absurd. He's like on the floor groveling, wailing at Michael's feet, just like, what can I do to repay? And Michael's just like loving every moment of it. And what was their solution? Like he would do Michael's laundry for a year or something like that. But what's happening there? Dwight's saying like, what do I have to do to be worthy again? What do I have to sacrifice to be worthy again? And we laugh at it, but like that happens in our lives where we're like, I need to reestablish a relationship that I've hurt by doing something. We all do this. This idea of sacrifice is not as weird as we think. And so here is God giving this idea of animal sacrifice. And, and here's what's really important. He's giving them the animal sacrifice, not as a set of rules that they have to keep but see this with me, friends, that it's grace. It's grace that the sacrifice is actually grace. God is saying, here's how we can deal with sin. 
Here's how we can live in relationship. Here's how you can live, I can live among you and you not be destroyed. I think we often approach Leviticus, it's like, oh, it's all these weird rules that we have to follow, that the Israelites had to follow. No, these are graces that God gives his people so that he can live among them and they're not destroyed. He's moving towards them and giving them things, rules, systems to deal with sin, to deal with shame, to deal with guilt. Sacrifice is how Israel communes with God. So look with me at verse 3. He brings an animal. It's without blemish. It's perfect. He lays his hand on it. They cut its throat. They slaughter it. They burn it. This is a gross process, right? There's no beating around the bush. It's a gross process. They put it on an altar and they burn all of it. They burn it till all that's left is like charred, fleshly, smoking nothing on an altar. And you're left going, that should have been me. That animal paid what I should have paid. That's the meaning that's communicated. Now, what's happening here? We'll look at verse 4. He tells us, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burning animal, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Now, what is atonement? Atonement is a major theme throughout the book of Leviticus. And we'll talk a lot about it. But basically, it's this, that the animal's blood is a ransom payment. It pays back the guilt of the sin. Just like Michael is paying, Dwight pays back Michael, so this animal's blood pays it back. In effect, the sacrifice is, is the, 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 the blood of this animal in place of my blood. This animal's blood bears my sin. It suffers. It dies. It is consumed so that I don't have to be. Blood has the ability to pay for sins. And we even get that today. Think of an action movie that you love, like Punisher or Taken or something like that. They all start with something happening to the hero or to his family or his wife. And, you know, he's mad and he calls the bad guys and he's like, you're going to pay with your blood. And we're like, yeah, get them. <laughs> we get that, right? That's what happening. Blood pays for things. Blood pays for things. That's what it has to happen. The animal bleeds in place of the person. We call this substitutionary atonement. That the animal is the substitute. It bears the place of the sinner. And it takes, it takes the blame so that the person can be free. Now, do you see the grace in this? That God dwells among his people. He gives them a means to deal with sin. When they ask, how are we to deal with our guilt and our shame that we're not destroyed? God says, here, I will accept this animal in your place. And here's how to do it. Where the animal is literally consumed by fire. God in his mercy allows sinful man to offer a ransom payment for his sins so that he escapes the death penalty that he, his sin merits. Now, this was a long time ago, 5,000 years ago-ish. How does that relate to us? How does that relate to us now? We worship the same God, and yet we don't slaughter lambs at large group. That would be weird, right? I think conference services would be like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> they came in and were like, <laughs> So... What changes? Sin doesn't change. Like, we're still sinners. If you're honest with yourself, 
we still live, we still, and so we still have to deal with sin. It's the same God, we're still the same sinners. We have to deal with sin now. How are we going to live with God and Him not destroy us? If you're going to honestly encounter and deal with the God of the Bible, you have to ask this question. You must deal with this question. How can I get clean? How can I deal with my guilt and my shame and my sin without being destroyed? Well, 1,200 years later, after this, John the Baptist sees this guy walking down the road, Jesus Christ, and what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you see what this means, friends? It means that Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice for sin. Jesus was the perfect lamb. He was more perfect than an animal could ever be. He was the spotless lamb who willingly bore the sin of the entire world, who was brutally slaughtered, whose blood paid the penalty for sin. Not just one sin, but the sin of the world for all time. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus and it consumed him completely. One chapter later in John chapter 2, Jesus says, zeal for my house, zeal for God's house will consume me. And he says, one verse later, that he will go to the cross and that he will die. That he will be consumed by God's wrath in our place. In our place. Jesus is the perfect final burnt offering for all the sins of the world, including mine, including yours. Now, that strikes home. At least it should. And it should, ha- it should elicit two responses from us. First, we need to feel the weight of our sin. We need to feel the weight of our sin. One of the most urgent needs in our life today, I think living in 21st century America, is that we don't feel the pressure, that we don't feel sin in our lives like we need to. And if this seems weird to you, if animal sacrifice seems weird to you, then I can tell you right now that you're not grasping as the Israelites, one, God's total holiness and your total unworthiness. And as you meditate and you dwell on those two things, you will begin to understand, wow, sacrifice needs to happen. You'll start to feel the need for burnt offerings. You'll start to feel the need for your Savior in Jesus Christ. So ask yourself this question. Do you see yourself as a sinner who without the grace of God would be consumed by his holiness? And if not, why? Second, don't overplay the power of sin. This is the flip side. None of, none of us are too far gone. None of us are too bad or too wretched that God will never forgive you. In this text, burnt offerings, and all the more Jesus Christ, He shows us that God is in the business of dealing with our sin, that He comes and says, I want to live among you. Let's deal with sin. Here's how. Believe in Jesus. Boom! It's done. Sin is done for as soon as we believe in Christ. God has done what you and I could never do. He deals with our sin. So there's two responses here. First, we confess our sin. We confess it and say, yeah, I'm not worthy. I don't deserve to be in God's presence without being destroyed. And second, we believe in who Jesus is and what he's done, and we receive his sacrifice on our behalf. How do we deal with sin? We let God deal with it for us. 
in the person and the work of Christ. And we leave knowing that we are reconciled to God completely by his grace and we praise him for it. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thanks for this. Thanks for a complex text and for your mercy in it. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage to look into our own hearts, to explore places that are hard, and that your spirit would show us how you deal with sin for us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Help us to know that more this week. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.